Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. Lawsuits and boycotts in response to Georgia's new Republican-backed voting law. At this hour, the ACLU, the ACLU of Georgia, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Southern Poverty Law Center, and other civil rights groups are announcing another federal lawsuit. The lawsuit states that Georgia's new law violates the Voting Rights Act, as well as the first 14th and 15th Amendments, to the United States Constitution. Now, a press conference is currently underway. I'll speak with Bishop Reginald T. Jackson from the 6th Episcopal District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church here in the Atlanta area in just a moment. But first, this different shift. Some promising news from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. Now, a new report from the agency finds COVID-19 vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna are effective at preventing coronavirus infections in, quote, real-world conditions. CDC researchers looked at nearly 4,000 folks who received two-dose COVID-19 vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who leads the CDC, called the results, quote, tremendously encouraging. The study found that the risk of infection was reduced by 90% after individuals received the two recommended doses of the vaccine. The study also found that people starting to get a protective effect even after the first dose Now, the CDC says about 28 percent of Americans have received at least one vaccine dose here in Georgia. Three point six three million doses have been administered and the cases continue to make new cases continue to remain steady. Now, yesterday was reported about eight hundred twenty five new cases. Now, this brings Georgia's total number of cases confirmed since late last March to 850,413 confirmed coronavirus cases. Your number of Georgians who have died due to this virus, 16,523. And the total number of hospitalizations since last year, 58,533. In related news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is self-quarantining today. According to a spokesperson, the governor came in contact with an individual who tested positive while he was touring storm damage in Noonan on Saturday. Now, Governor Kemp was vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson shot just last Friday. Word from Kemp's staff is the governor tested negative for the virus on Monday. This is the governor's second time he needed to self-quarantine due to the coronavirus. And this is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. 
As always, I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned earlier at this hour, representatives from various civil rights and voter advocacy groups are speaking in a during a virtual press conference. Now, these civil rights groups have filed a new federal lawsuit against Georgia's sweeping law. And again, it includes the ACLU, the ACLU of Georgia, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, as well as the Southern Poverty Law Center. The suit filed by the law firms Wilmer Hale and Davis Wright Tremaine brought the case on behalf of the 6th District of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Georgia, as well as some other groups. Bishop Reginald T. Jackson is the presiding prelate of the 6th Episcopal District of the AME Church, and he joins me now right before he's about to join that press conference. So, Bishop Jackson, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, I guess I don't need to ask your reaction to the governor signing the the Senate Bill 202 into law, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> well, let me say it's very disappointing and it's also uh, very troubling. Uh, this bill was based on a lie. Uh, the former liar in chief, as I call him, uh, said that he lost the election because it was rigged, because it was stolen. And on the basis of that, uh, in 43 states across the nation, legislators have filed legislation which seeks to suppress the black vote, which in fact is racist and seeks to turn back time to the period of Jim Crow. And so this is really a uh, serious threat to our democracy, particularly this bill Governor Kemp signed in Georgia. It's not common that a religious organization or entity or, or affiliation is, you know, files a lawsuit against a, a government agency, but you all felt it was necessary to be part of this. Well, absolutely. And I don't think it's necessarily unique, uh, even though it may not have been litigation, uh, for example, during the civil rights movement. Sure. Much of that was, in fact, spurred by leadership of the faith community. In fact, the civil rights movement's leadership came out of the black church. And the black church historically has been called the conscience of the nation. And it's time for us to regain that legacy and to retake uh, back what uh, is trying to be taken from us. When you say to take back what has been taken from us and you find this measure as well as so many other organizations and folks find this measure being extremely suppressive or oppressive or restrictive primarily toward black voters here in Georgia. It is. Um, if you look at it, the consequences are intended to particularly harm black and brown voters to discourage them from voting. For example, let's take the simplest piece. Sure. The one that if somebody's standing in line, you can't give them water or a snack. If you remember in last year's June primary, you had people in inner city standing in line five and six hours to vote. In fact, that day in the rain, you mean to tell me you can't give them water or a snack? The intent is for people to stand in long lines to get discouraged and to go home. That's one way in which you suppress the vote. And in fact, they do everything they can. For example, in uh, 2020 and in 2018, you had more voters, but less polling sites. Mm -hmm. In fact, the law also says that polling sites are supposed to be able to handle up to 2,000 voters. You have sites all across urban areas which had over 3,000 people coming to vote. That's a violation of law. 
When you talk about the drastic measures that this law is going to implement here, if it indeed is not preempted by some type of uh, court intervention here, when you talk about these measures here, are you surprised that the Secretary of State here in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, has not been more vocal uh, as he was when he was vocal and being accused of, of not running a fair elections by then President Trump and all of his supporters? Well, the same reason Governor Kemp signed the bill. You know, President Trump came after both Kemp and Raffensperger personally. Mm -hmm. And Governor Kemp, for example, he really had no choice but to sign these bills because it looks like every possibility he's going to have a primary in the Republican Party when he runs. If he had not signed this bill, he feels he would have been through because whatever remaining Republican support he had would have been lost. Brad Raffensperger hopes to be reelected as Secretary of State. He already has an announced challenger, Congressman Jody Heights. Mm -hmm. So Raffensperger is trying to save his spot. So therefore, he's not going to come out and criticize this legislation, even though this legislation usurps his authority as Secretary of State. You see then this as more about political gain for Governor Kemp and Secretary Raffensperger as opposed to being what is fair and what is considered part of our democracy is everyone in this nation, the right to vote. Oh, fairness has nothing at all to do with this election. This election is making sure that Republicans don't lose again. If Republicans had won the election in November, and if they had won the two Senate races, none of these bills would have been introduced. These bills were introduced because they lost. And may I remind you that it was Republican legislatures which passed these laws in the first place, dealing with absentee voting, drop boxes and everything else, they passed. When these laws worked for them, they were fine. When they worked for us, all of a sudden there's something wrong with them. Let's talk about then support and then maybe through some folks' lens, lack of support. There now has been cause to boycott some of the Atlanta-based names we all know, Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, for what people view as not speaking out enough or not being defined in their opposition against this law. You are quoted in the AJC here. You see that they could have done more. Well, let's look at Mm Coca-Cola. In June 3rd of last year, the chairman and chief executive officer of uh, Coca-Cola stated, companies like ours can do better. We must stand up as allies of Black Lives Matter and other social justice issues. We can do better. Well, here is a chance for them to do better. When there is legislation specifically intended to suppress the black and brown vote. Did they speak out against it? No. Then on top of that, let's take Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines sent out an in-house memo the end of last week. They ended up in that memo praising this legislation. Again, legislation which seeks to suppress black and brown votes. We cannot continue to give these companies our money and to drink their products and to fly on their flights if in fact they are not going to stand up for what is right. And I remind you, uh, one of our bishops, Bishop Frank Cummings has a saying, there's no right way to do wrong. I say to these corporate leaders, there's no right way to do wrong. Are you encouraging folks 
to boycott Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola and any other corporation? On Thursday at noon, probably, we will be having a press conference outside of Coca-Cola. We will address that matter. Are you willing to try to get a meeting with either the CEO of Delta Airlines or, or Coca-Cola or someone with that work as well to try and talk through all of this? Let me say this. We are trying to set up a meeting with these corporate executives because I believe it's imperative that we give them a chance to explain their position to us and for us to explain our position to them. And let me add the very last thing I want to do is boycott any of these companies. In fact, Delta Airlines in 2019, before the pandemic, 2019 alone, I guarantee you, I flew over a hundred times on Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines, I feel like is my airline. Mm -hmm. I do not want to boycott my airline. But also, since I've given so much to Delta, I want for Delta to do the right thing by me. And we should know Closer Look reached out to Delta Airlines requesting an interview with the CEO, Ed Bastian, and also looking for a statement. We have yet to receive a response. Bishop Jackson, before I let you go, also now there are calls, and we've been down this road before in terms of no econ- no new economic development coming into the state. Of course, this happened some years ago with the religious freedom, RIFRA bills and all of that, and also calls for Major League Baseball All-Star Game not to be here. Is that something else that you would support? Well, let me say this. I, I want to impact as little as I can the lives of middle-income and low-income folk. But I do think one of the things we could consider, for example, the Masters Golf Tournament. We might ask black golfers not to participate in the Masters, the Major League All-Star. Why not ask all the golfers? Let me say, well, no, matter of fact, ask all, but at least specifically try to reach black because this is who this legislation impacts. And the same thing with Major League All-Star Game in Atlanta. I would love to be at that All-Star Game, but it might be that you might ask uh, black players not to participate in the all-star game i think the most important thing is you need to send a message i think that would send a major message bishop reginald t jackson is the presiding prelate of the sixth episcopal district of the african methodist episcopal church here in georgia bishop jackson as always thank you for taking the time i really appreciate it i'm going to let you go and get to your press conference thank you so much have a great day you too Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
Atlanta has come a long way in earning the mantra, the Silicon Valley of the South. In fact, back in 2017, Forbes said Atlanta was one of the five U.S. cities, quote, poised to become one of tomorrow's tech meccas. Well, recently, Emory University teamed up with a New York-based company that specializes in coding and tech theme boot camps. It's all part of Full Stack Academy. And joining me now to talk more about this, well, we welcome Paul Welty, Vice Provost for Academic Innovation and Interim Executive Director at Emory Continuing Education, and Mogan Subramaniam, President of Full Stack Academy. Thank you both for taking the time. Thanks for having it's me. It's great to be here. All right. Morgan, let me begin with you, because before we get into the, the boot camp and the academy, what makes a city a true tech hub? What are the metrics involved before a city can claim that, you know what, we just like Silicon Valley? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I think things that you'd want to look at is the number of tech jobs that come online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also the number of companies that are moving to the country, uh, to the city, Uh, Number of unfilled jobs, the percentage increase. These are some of the metrics that you look at. Also, uh, salaries. Hmm. That's another sign as well. And and to to provide even more context, over the last 10 years in Atlanta, the number of tech jobs have grown by 50%. Yeah, I keep reading that. Let me ask you this. Um, Yeah, Go ahead. The national average is 20%. So that's clearly a sign that Atlanta is moving at a much faster rate uh, with respect to the tech scene. All right. Well, Paul Welty, let me ask you the same question. Um, you heard what Mogan had to say. You agree that all those metrics make Atlanta a, a tech hub? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we know that from our research and also working with Mogan and his team. And one of the things that we do at, at Emory is look out for those kinds of trends to support the workforce now and the workforce of the future looking for what the city's going to need, what the state's going to need down the road so that we can help provide that kind of educational opportunity. You know, a while ago here on this program, I think back in 2019, we spent an entire week talking about Atlanta's growing tech industry. And one of the topics that we talked about, and I invited a guest, Dr. Kamal Bob on, and he talked about the challenges tied to ensuring an equitable and diverse candidate pipeline. Take a listen. Without question, we have the full scope of technical offerings, I think, from K through post-tertiary uh, education. So there's no question that we have the capacity to offer elite technical education to some subset of the city. The second part of your question is different. Mm-hmm. as to whether or not we have an equitable infrastructure to offer that. So what the equity piece in all of that means, I think it's important sometimes to define terms, uh, as you say. And so equity, in my estimation, means the absence of bias. It's the presence of fairness. It's the presence of justice. So to the extent that there are students who have the freedom to be able to choose to have access to, uh, to pursue, to excel in the highest level of the technical uh, education that we have to offer, absolutely not. Mogan, I'll get your response to that. Uh, Professor Bob talking about equity and access, it's just not there when we talk about particularly that for students of color. Do you agree? It is, if you look at the numbers, it is true. It's hard to deny that you have equal representation and diverse representation in in education across. Um, And 
a lot of effort has to go into understanding why this is the case. In our side, you know, we, we try and track numbers based across ethnicity. We track numbers across uh, gender lines and mm-hmm. we see, we see it, you know, it's not even at all. And so we've been doing a bunch of things uh, to try. And for example, we have created all women cohorts, but that addresses the gender, mm-hmm. the gender equation in New York. We did that. We used to have just 20, 23% women in our programs. Now it's 50%, but it took years and years and a very dedicated effort. And we, it was not just an all women cohort. We had to also make it a tuition, uh, a different tuition model. So you don't pay upfront. You mm-hmm. only pay as when you get a job. Mm-hmm. Similarly, um, now we're looking at um, along ethnicity lines and you see the same thing. So uh, again, in New York, we launched a program called the Opportunity Fund, mm-hmm. which was strictly, this was a scholarship fund, a full ride program for, uh, for black and African-American students. And we did that simply because we were not seeing enough students. And I don't think it's because they don't want to get into the program. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably because they're not aware and, or it is beyond their means. Uh, and so this program, uh, we just started, we have dispersed all of the scholarships and we already had our first graduate get a job uh, last month, 30 days after graduating. Um, so yes, the, that's a long answer, but the, sh- the, the short answer is yes, it's, it's uneven. Uh, equity is not equitable at the moment, but it can be addressed, but it has to be thoughtfully done. Well, Morgan, let me tell you something. We enjoy long answers, uh, particularly when we talk about something like this. So I appreciate that. Paul, let me bring you back into the conversation. Uh, when we talk about equity and access, And you heard what Professor Bob had to say in that clip that I played. And he said, right now, it's just not here, particularly in the Atlanta area. But is it getting better? I think it's getting better in the sense that there's a lot more awareness, attention to the issue um, and intentional action, not just talk about Mm -hmm. making it better. And it's one of the reasons we like full stack and working with them is they're very aligned to Emory and our values about diversity, equity and inclusion. Because when we talk about the workforce, it's an it's an economic argument for the most part. Is the more people who have better jobs, it's better for everybody in Atlanta and Georgia and and beyond. But if we leave people behind, it's not good for anybody's economic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one thing. So it's a it's a great argument from a development perspective. But also, it's not fair and it's not right to leave people behind when they don't have the same access. And so. At Emory, we're definitely committed to making sure that happens. And yes, we're looking at a, you know, it's a program that uh, costs money traditionally. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's an economic argument for the most part. But we want to make sure that when we partner with somebody, that our values align with what we're trying to do at Emory broadly. And it's not just about getting people jobs and making money. It's about providing access and opportunity. And so we always make sure that our partnerships and our programs include that component and we are looking at other areas for this kind of programming uh, option, de- web development or cybersecurity to be extended to workforce development programs, to be extended to other targeted areas in Atlanta and Georgia, to focus these opportunities on people, uh, like Mogan said, who might not have had these opportunities before. And, and for us, it's just as important to include that as part of the program mm-hmm. as it is to serve those who already have the means. Let's talk about this partnership. It's a 26-week cybersecurity and coding boot camp, and your mission is simple. You said it's aimed at helping more students enter Georgia's technology industry. How did this partnership come about? Anyone of y'all can take that. Sure. Um, 
Paul, you want to go ahead? Uh, sure. So for us at, at Emory, we're always looking for some of the courses we provide and sometimes we partner. The, and so one of the things that we do when something is very technical like this, we prefer to find a partner who's already an expert in this area. Mm -hmm. um, full stack, highly recommended, um, great reviews. Um, all their partners speak highly of them, which is something we like. And also, like I said, their values and interest and in how we serve Atlanta together and Georgia specifically uh, also great because, you know, we're both in it for the good of the people and the good of the economy. So that's the way we select uh, providers. And Mogan, for our listeners who may not be uh, familiar with Full Stack Academy, if you can briefly give them sort of a, a snapshot of what your company does. Sure. So Full Stack Academy is one of the longest running and successful, most successful coding boot camps in the country. We train adult learners and career changers who are hoping to enter the IT industry. Uh, our programs are in web development and cybersecurity. Most of our, we've now trained about 3,000 people and uh, they work at companies like Amazon, Google, and Facebook. They tend to be people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, who have suddenly realized, I really want to get into tech. But hmm. going back to college or going to college and to do a four-year program is just not within, it's not, it's not a, an option for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but they still need a high-quality program. And that's what we do. So you have a, a, a very diverse and generational speaking, generationally speaking, too, in terms of the, those who are taking these, these classes. Why cyber tech? cybersecurity and coding. Is that like the two at the top that everybody wants to learn? Is that why? It is both. Yes, there are, there are a lot of people who want to learn these, but these are also the skills that are in highest demand on mm. the employer side of things. And our mission is to transform lives by teaching technologies that power the future. We see a massive acceleration because of technology and there are a group of people who are going to be left behind we want to minimize that size of that group. So it's a, that's a constant evaluation of what are the skills that are needed. And right now, cybersecurity and, and coding are in very high demand. That said, we are, we are working on new programs. There are other areas that are also in great demand. Well, let's talk about then the students. How do you all find them or how do they find you, Paul? So it's a combination of uh, what you'd think, traditional advertising, outreach, word of mouth, past uh, participants. Um, at, at Emory, we often get people who are interested in, like Mogan said, a, a career change of some kind, and they don't know quite what. We offer lots of other programs too, besides technology ones for folks who are looking to get into like a paralegal career or mm -hmm. something else. And so we get a lot of people who just know they wanna make a change. They think there's something better for them and they're willing to invest and look for something. And then what we do is we steer them to the program that's right for them. Um, and a lot of times it's technology. It's, it's interesting, it's a lot of demand, high paying. So that attracts people to look for possibilities even about what the training opportunities might be. So it's, it's a mix, but um, for us, it's all about getting the right people in the right opportunity for the kind of career that they want. It's more and more ongoing, um, right? We have to recognize that's as an ongoing and accelerating trend you know, seeking additional education, looking to change careers, a multi-career, um, you know, lifetime. These are things that are becoming more and more common. So both of you all are saying that for someone like me who knows nothing about coding, let alone cybersecurity, other than I know I have to change my password every now and then, 
after 26 weeks, I'm going to be qualified and certified to do something. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Y'all don't this, sound this confident. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. This, this program is specifically designed for beginners. Uh, it's, it's designed for people who are very keen to get into the industry, but they do not have a technical background. That's how we designed this. And this program has been designed over a few years now, and we have a lot of success stories mm -hmm. that have come out of this. Um, the, the, for anyone who is interested, the application itself is pretty simple. Mm -hmm. There is a non-technical assessment that comes after that. But it's just for us to understand how you solve problems, how you identify patterns, logical reasoning, things like that. And then you get the entrance decision. And, you, and throughout the entire process, you can consult with uh, Emory Continuing Education student advisors to see if the program is right for you. And this is but, all, all, all online. Morgan? One thing to all mention online. about yeah. One thing about that, too, is that um, it's just as important, and you brought it up, um, some people just don't see themselves as technologists. They think it's as impossible. This isn't for me. I can't do this. This is for other people. And, you know, it's everyone started not knowing anything at some point, and everyone can get there. And it, it's just possible. And so part of what we're trying to do at Emory is help people see themselves in that kind of future and open their eyes so that you you can learn to program. It's not something for other people. If that's interesting to you and you've got some basic aptitude, there's no reason you can't have a future like that. There's a cost. Are there scholarship or assistance available? Yes. So the, the tuition is $10,490 for a six-month program. It's um, It's... It's a part-time program, two nights a week mm -hmm. and one Saturday morning. Right now, for the coding program, for the first cohort, there's an additional $2,000 scholarship, $2, scholarship. So the tuition comes down to $8,490. On top of all of this, there are scholarships of up to $2,000 for military personnel and veterans. There is also a 10% discount for employees and students and alumni of Emory University, as well as employees of Emory Healthcare and the CDC. There, and, and we also partner with Skills Fund so that our students can finance their tuition. You can get all of the details at bootcamp.emory.edu. And you all making sure that that financing is the reasonable interest rate, Mogan? Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't want my listeners signing up and they send me an email you know, six months later, <laughs> talking about no, it, you know, yeah, 26% interest. No, no, it's not. It's something that we we were pretty careful with uh, in our selection of a partner. Uh, if you notice anything that's off, let us know. But yes, we've been working oh, with Oh, I will let time. you know because the listeners will let you. <laughs> they will let me know. Now, let me ask you all this. And when it comes to job placement as well, you all help. Are you, are you guaranteeing that folks will be ready for some type of of, of job in the, in these fields and you all help with placement? Do you have partnerships with companies that are willing to take these folks who just look for a lot of folks, man, that's a lot of money and they are willing to put, put in the work. So y'all going to help them get a job. Absolutely. Um, yeah, go ahead. Paul. There's definitely um, some ways that we can help people get jobs. <laughs> Uh, we don't offer a guarantee because, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that, but mm -hmm. we definitely support it. It's definitely the goal of the program to put you, make you job ready. And um, 
it's a lot of times it's just finding the right match, finding the right opportunities, but it's something we definitely aggressively support. As we wrap up, someone listening says, okay, you, I'm, I'm, you've piqued my interest, but again, that person may be saying, I just technology, ah, it's just not me. You all are saying that you come in, you're looking for beginners. You're looking for folks who these, this is the type of applicant candidate that you want in these programs. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You yep. You are, you are interested. You feel that this is something you like to get into, but you're not sure. You're nervous. You are exactly the person we want to talk to. All right. Well, we will have a link on our website to more information about that. I really appreciate both of you taking the time. Paul Welty, Vice Provost for Academic Innovation and Interim Executive Director at Emory Continuing Education and Mogan Subramaniam, president of Full Stack Academy. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm going to hold you to what you just said. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Park Springs is a local continuing care retirement community over in Stone Mountain. And in April of last year, I had a conversation with Donna Moore. She's the chief operating officer for Isaacson Living, which owns and operates Park Springs. Now, during that conversation, Donna talked about the proactive measures to mitigate the spread of the virus, which at that time we weren't sure what was really going to happen. Take a listen. In February, we started paying attention to what was going on in Washington State, and we started planning our scenarios of what might happen in Georgia at Park Springs. And we started putting pencil to paper and thinking through all of the strategies and tactics we might employ. And Rose, it became clear to me very, very quickly that the biggest thing we could do was control human traffic. And so in Late February, early March, we started screening through our security gate. We are a gated community. Mm-hmm. And we started asking the questions that the CDC was recommending. We also started taking temperatures before anyone told us to start taking temperatures. And we were turning family members away. We were turning vendors away. We were even telling our employees to go home if they didn't pass our screening criteria. Because Mm -hmm. again, the key is human traffic. If I can control the human traffic on our campus, we might have a chance at, at staying a step ahead of this thing. Well, and there was something else. Some employees, some of the staff opted to move in to help continue their duties. Well, today marks one year since Park, since Park Springs staff participated in what we call maybe a, a lock-in, or I, I like to call it a help-in. And Donna Moore joins me now to reflect on these last 12 months and to talk more about how things are going now at Park Springs. Donna, good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Rose. It's great to be with you today. I can't believe it's been a year. I was just about to say that. <laughs> I was just wow. about to say that. Wow. Today is our one-year anniversary of the first members moving on to campus. We planned it that way. Let's let's reflect for you, Donna, the last 12 months. How do wow. you sum it all up? <laughs> well, and you know, it's uh, moving in onto campus, doing lock-in, and I liked your term too, being there for 11 weeks, figuring out how do we protect people because we can't live on campus forever. Mm -hmm. 
you know, what does phase two look like? Personal responsibility, you know, the three W's, wash your hands, watch your distance, wear your mask. And we just got smarter and smarter and smarter. And then the vaccine came along and we found ourselves at the beginning of the year with vaccine clinics on campus for our members and our employees. And our two weeks out from our last vaccine was the beginning of March. Mm. And then, you know, rules started to change because of the vaccine. And Rose, it has been a whirlwind of, tw- of the last 12 months. But boy, when I look back and think about what we've been through and what this industry has been through, mm-hmm. it it is remarkable, but not in a good way. Don, I want to ask, first of all, as far as the residents and your staff, did you lose anybody due to the virus? We didn't lose any employees. Um, we did lose three members. Mm-hmm. And it was this year. We, we are not immune, Rose. We did all the right things right. We followed our protocols. If a hand can touch it, we wiped it. We were disinfecting, but you know, we're not immune. And we, we did, we, we lost three members and it was heartbreaking for us. And it was heartbreaking for our team because we had put so much into it. It was heartbreaking for their families. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, how did you, what did you all do to keep the spirits, not only for your residents, your staff up, you know, family members couldn't come visit. What did you all do there at Park Springs over these these months before, you know, the vaccine was available? Rose, we, we practice something that is called person-centered care. And for us, it's the household model. And the household model says that you bring together members and employees in small cohorts. We have households of 18 Mm -hmm. and they live and work together in those cohorts. And that household model of care also says that your number one job in taking care of your members, which is what we call them. We don't call them residents, our members. Mm -hmm. Our number one job is engagement. And sometimes your job is sitting on a couch holding a hand or playing a game of chess or watching a movie together. And that goes a very, very long way during these last couple of months for addressing social isolation. Because it doesn't have to mean that you don't have interactions or you don't have quality to your day. So we became our members' second families, and they became ours. And that's how we practice. It's, it's more about caring than care, so to speak. With your members, the dedication you all had to your members and then the staff, I want to talk about you being, you know, your leadership in all of this. How did you get through it? Or how have you been getting through it? Wow. Uh, You know, the 11 weeks was all about fighting a common enemy called COVID. And when I walked out of those doors on June 13th and and hugged my daughter and got to see my family, it, um, 
it was very emotional for me. And it just inspired me to make that true for our members going forward. I mean, 11 weeks, Rose, is nothing compared to our members haven't seen their loved ones for over a year. Mm-hmm. We've, sh- we've shown them their loved ones on Zoom and on FaceTime and in window visits and tent visits. But to be able to touch your family, to hug your family, to hold mom's hand or dad's hand, uh, it makes a difference. So for me, hugging my daughter and my family after 11 weeks just inspired me to want to find a way, find a way to make that true for our members as well. And then, you know, doing our jobs of continuously looking for ways to improve our circumstances and infection control and safety. And, you know, how can we be creative? You know, the governor said, uh, you can't let visitors in your building. Well, he didn't say anything about letting our members out. So we built a three-sided tent that we pushed up against the side of our building so our members could come out into the tent mm-hmm. and be with their loved ones who were outside. Mm. So, you know, we've, we've just tried to be creative. And I am so lucky as a leader that, that I have rock stars, um, executive directors and administrators and they are passionate about our mission of loving and serving members. So it's been a journey. I, th- I think this has been the best 12 months of my career. Really? In a pandemic. Wow. I have learned. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have learned so much about our industry, about our employees, about senior living, about people, mm-hmm. about myself. You know, I I believe you've got to love them to lead them. And boy, do I love them. They are fantastic people that work and live at Park Springs. If you just joined us, I'm in conversation with Donna Moore, Chief Operating Officer for Isaacson Living. Now, Donna helps oversee operations at Park Springs, Stone Mountain, and I believe Peachtree Hills Place in Buckhead, correct? And we're talking about what a year it's been. That is correct. Yeah, we're talking about what a year it's been. Donna, well, now you mentioned it. The vaccine came along, and did y'all have a party? <laughs> what did the members do? We, we did have a party. I tell you, we have over 550 members at Park Springs. And I think the first day, because we, we're such a big campus with all of the, you know, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and mm-hmm. skilled nursing we had to we had to plan how we were going to to set up those vaccine clinics but i think the first day we had 75% of our community sign up for a vaccine mm. and ultimately rose 98% of our members and it may even be more now have a vaccine got a vaccine through a vaccine clinic on our campus and and so a- yes we did have a party and your staff, did you? I imagine that just your staff, they were front and center as well to get the yeah. vaccine? Yes, because we, we brought them to the table as well. And we did a lot of education. We did, uh, we had our medical director go into small groups and talk with our employees. Uh, we had flyers, we had Q&As. And I tell you, we made the decision early on that we weren't going to mandate we didn't think that was the right thing to do for us. Um, and we got over 50% of our employees in our vaccine clinics. When you say and you even now. 
Okay, well, someone, hold on a second, Don, because someone says, well, you don't want to mandate, but as an employer, you can, as for what we're hearing. And given the environment and the folks that you all are, are helping, you don't want to mandate that your staff, if if it, if they can, I mean, it could be for if they have religious re- reasons or, you know, maybe a medical condition, but you don't want to strongly encourage folks to get vaccinated? We did strongly encourage but we didn't want a mandate. You know, we we treat our employees as family and they, they uh, we gave them all the education. You know, some people like me, for instance, in our communities, you can't, you can't require someone to, or you could, and some communities have, but we didn't want to require our employees to do something that was in emergency use authorization mm-hmm. state. Okay. You know, it's not FDA approved. And we know these employees and we knew they'd show up. And they did over 50%. And they're still showing up. We are still, um, they will still come to us and ask for help in setting up appointments. And we are doing that every day. We're partnering with our pharmacy on site uh, that provides pharmaceuticals for our members. And they have said they'll come on site and offer vaccines. But you know, when the national average is in the 30s, I'm pretty proud of that 50 percent number. Mm-hmm. Even even with the FDA issuing what is called emergency use authorizations, you you see that that for some folks, if that's an objection for not or hesitancy not to get the vaccine, you I just want to be clear, you you all are OK with that. I think that our employees, I think there are some that will see that as a milestone that makes them feel better about getting the vaccine. Mm-hmm. We're still seeing, you know, eight, seven or eight a, a week calling us and saying, hey, can I have some more information or what is the latest? So I think that it, it is another milestone that will get some more folks. You know, some folks are just late adopters. Mm-hmm. Um and as long as my members are vaccinated and my employees are coming on, I feel good about that. As we wrap up, Donna, a moment ago, you talked about how much you had learned through all of this and, and this being an incredible 11 months throughout your long career working in this space. Um, what was that biggest lesson or one of the biggest lessons for you or takeaway? You know, Rose, I I would have to say that when you when you find your calling, when when you know that you're in the right place and you're doing good things for other people and you're serving, you know, it's not a job. It is it is a calling, and I work with people who have been called to serve seniors. And I think that it's a shame that it had to happen at the end of my career because I spent most of it in corporate America. But thank goodness I found it now. It is a calling. And I am I am so glad that I'm where I am now learning as I'm learning as a leader. Donna Moore, Chief Operating Officer for Isaacs and Living. They operate Park Springs. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for sharing your one year with us. And we're glad that. You know, we're sorry for the tragic loss of your three members, but we're glad that everyone is safe. Thank you, Donna. 
Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you. Take care now. And Closer Look continues now. Before we say goodbye, as mentioned earlier, representatives from various civil rights and voter advocacy groups have come together to announce a lawsuit regarding what they call restrictive and suppressive voting laws. Of course, the law Kemp signed, Governor Kemp signed Senate Bill 202 into law last week. Now, at today's press conference, Sophia Lakin, the deputy director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, called the law unconstitutional law is voter suppression plain and simple and aimed at making it harder for black and brown and other historically disenfranchised communities to have a voice in our democracy it's an absolutely shameful response to the historic participation by these communities in the last election cycle now lakin went on to say this law criminalizes groups and people who pass out food and water to voters as they wait in long lines When AME Church and others throughout Georgia provide food and water to sustain and encourage voters who are waiting in line to stay in line and vote, they are engaging in precisely the type of interactive communication concerning political change that is appropriately described as core political speech. This is protected under the First Amendment, and there is simply no legitimate justification for the law's attempt to restrict that speech. And the lawsuit filed by the ACLU, the ACLU of Georgia, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and other states, yes, Georgia's new law violates the Voting Rights Act, as well as you just heard, the first, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the United States. WABE politics reporter Emma Hurt will have more coverage on this today during All Things Considered, hosted locally by Jim Burris. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is always produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online. It's always online. They're all online at wabe.org slash closer look or wherever you find your favorite podcast. And now a programming note, if you didn't know, it started yesterday. Closer Look rebroadcast is at 7 p.m. We've moved an hour up. Yes, 7 p.m. Now stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. 
I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.